Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello there, welcome back to the podcast. This one is a vocabulary episode about Brexit. So the Brexit theme continues here with a look at some of the language uh, of that subject. Um, So this podcast episode can definitely help your English a lot, especially your listening skills and your vocabulary in this case. Uh, But don't forget that it'll work best if you also uh, do other types of study. And um, if you want to work on your spoken fluency, then you could always check out the sponsor of this podcast, which is... Uh, the fantastic website italki and there you can find English teachers and native speakers to talk to and it's a really good way to focus on your spoken fluency um, and um, the other cool thing is that because you are a Lepster italki will give you a voucher worth 100 italki credits when you buy some English lessons with them um, so that's nice isn't it to check out that offer and to check out italki just go to teacherluke.co.uk forward slash talk or click an italki logo on my website. All right, so any questions, feel free to contact me via my website. Uh, But that is it for this little mention. So here now is the new episode, Play the Jingle. Ladies and gentlemen, this is a journey into the English language. A journey into the DNA of the English language. Really? The DNA of the English language. Now that's a... Really quite a strong claim. I find your lack of faith disturbing. Who are you? You talking to me? You talking to me? You know who I'm talking to. I'm a school teacher. I teach English composition. Oh, really? Yes! Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Luke's English Podcast. How are you doing? I hope you're okay. hope you're well and fine and all that sort of thing. Uh, Now, normally at the beginning of an episode uh, like this, I would spend some time making a bit of small talk, you know. I often talk about the weather or ask you questions about where you are and what you're doing as you listen to this episode. Uh, But um, we're going to have to skip all that stuff because there's no time for chit-chat, okay? Uh, We have lots of things to cover in this episode, so I'd like to just get straight down to it. I know that some of you might be thinking, but Luke, what about the British Council Elton Awards? What happened? Uh, What about the weather in Paris? I see on the news that it's been raining a lot. Are you completely flooded? Uh, Well, I will talk about that stuff in a bit more detail. I'm going to uh, record another episode in which I kind of give you some general uh, news and have a bit of a chat, just a bit of a chat, Um, and I'll talk more about that stuff in a bit. But um, in this episode, I want to go through the language of Brexit, okay? I've created a list of uh, vocabulary items. So I've got a big list of words uh, because um, in the in the fir- in the previous episode, you heard me talking to my dad about the subject and we just had a discussion. There wasn't really a language focus. It was just a discussion. And it seems that lots of people really enjoyed listening to that. Um, I've had lots of positive uh, comments and nice encouraging responses from Lepsters on the website. Uh, so it's really great that you enjoyed listening to that. And I agree with you. I think that Brexit is um, 
interesting enough and significant enough to explore in a bit more detail. And I did say in the last episode that I wanted to um, pay closer attention to the language and the vocabulary of this subject. Um, Because this is vocab that's not just uh, exclusive to Brexit. It's this is uh, these are words, expressions, and phrases that we use to talk about all kinds of things. So it's it's actually very broad uh, this subject really. And in this episode, I guess what I'm going to do is is continue to talk about Brexit, but focus on the language. Okay. So the main focus is going to be on vocabulary, and we're using Brexit as the kind of case study for looking at this language. Um, so basically, what I'm trying to say is that. Um, this, these vocab items, I've taken them out of the Brexit subject, and I'm pre- I'm presenting them to you in this episode. Uh, but you can use them to talk about all sorts of other things because these are words that relate to economics, finance, trade, investment, uh, politics, uh, immigration, and stuff like that. So these are subjects that uh, obviously have relevance. Um, in many areas, not just talking about uh, the UK's relationship to the EU. Okay, so it's this is Brexit as a case study uh, to look at some language. Okay, um, I also would like to um, talk to you a little bit about collocations at this point. Um, so this, since this is a vocabulary episode, uh, I thought it would be a good idea to just mention something about. Um, ways of learning vocabulary and ways of organising your vocab. Um, Now, it's actually pretty tricky to deal with vocabulary because words don't just exist on their own. So you have to be careful that you don't learn words alone, you know? And I don't mean just on your own, like sitting in a room lonely. Uh, Obviously, uh, you might want to have some friends around. I don't know, but uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I mean, you shouldn't words. You shouldn't words. You shouldn't learn words on their own. You should understand that words always exist uh, in context, and that means they exist in a meaningful context. For example, in this case, talking about Brexit, but they also exist in a lexical context or even a grammatical context. That means that words um, are connected to other words in a sentence. Um, So, I mean, this relates to collocation, all right? Um, So, okay, what am I talking about? Well, let's use the example of of homework, okay? So, obviously, you know the word homework. It's an easy word. Everyone knows it. But if we just use that as an example, as a way of looking at what collocation is. um, Now, the word homework um, is actually bound to other words. It's connected to other words in a sentence. Like, for example, what is the verb that we use with homework? Do you, do you, do you make homework? Do you do homework? What's the right verb? Well, I understand that I think in German, for example, you make homework, but in English, you do homework, all right? Uh, what are you doing? I'm just doing my homework, okay? Or I, he forgot to do his homework, or I did my homework on the bus. So in English, it's do your homework, not make your homework. That's an example of collocation, okay? Um, it's just do is the verb that we use with homework, okay? Um, so what this means for you when you're learning vocabulary is that you need to be aware of the collocations uh, that um, connect words to, to other words. So what are the common collocations? Um, 
Okay, and it, it relates, obviously, to things like if you've got a noun, what's the verb that we typically use with that noun? Also, what's the adjective that we would use with that noun or prepositions and things like that? Um, it also could branch out to uh, other phrases or idioms or typical things that we say about those words. Like if it's homework, you know, we have, uh, you know, you might ha make mental connections to Things like excuses, typical excuses. So this is like cultural connections to the word homework. So it could be things like, you know, my dog ate my homework, for example, is a, a sort of a, a typical excuse that kids give at school. So the point I'm making here is that you shouldn't learn words on their own, but you should remember that words go, in, go together with other words. They are connected to other words and they're connected to other concepts and things like that. So there's a, a, a connection in terms of meaning, but also a connection in terms of uh, lexis. Um, so I've been using a collocations dictionary while preparing this episode. Um, and a lot of the language that I'm going to go through... Um, um, with a lot of the language I'm going through, you'll find some collocations as well. So just pay attention to collocations as we go through this language. Uh, where has all this vocabulary come from, you might be asking? Um, well, all of it relates to Brexit, as I've said. And um, I've taken these words from a number of places. So first of all, I took them from some of the university notes that I used while teaching my classes at university this semester. Um, I did a few classes on Brexit this year. So I've got some notes there from from um, from those lessons. So I've taken words from those notes. All right. Um, also, the conversation with my dad in the last episode that you listened to. Um, I've been through that and I've picked out a few bits of language um, and uh, put them into my list. And also, I've taken language from articles that I've been reading on uh, The Guardian's website, uh, The Financial Times, The Week, the Telegraph and the BBC. So I've been looking through uh, different news articles about Brexit and kind of picking out some of the commonly occurring bits of vocabulary from there as well. Okay. Um, all right. So remember that you should visit the page for this episode on my website. That's teacherluke.co.uk. Check out the page for this episode because you will find all of these words written there for you to, to have a look at. Uh, so if you'd like to know the spelling and if you want to see the words with some examples, if you'd like to copy paste the words into your own word lists or maybe paste them into flashcard apps or whatever, um, you can do that. And you'll see lots of examples given. Um, this episode is not transcribed yet. Um, I haven't written a transcript in advance because, um, well, why? Why, not? why haven't I written a transcript? Well, I think it's preferable to speak on the podcast without a transcript. I think that it's, it just hopefully will make it more natural and engaging. Um, if I've, I find that when I transcribe stuff in advance and then read the stuff that I've written, it doesn't sound as natural. There's just something different in the way that we write and the way that we read. And unless you're an amazing actor or a really brilliant writer, it's very difficult to read a script um, in the way that a person would normally talk in, a, in an unplanned way. So I've got notes, I'm reading from notes, but the majority of this is, is not transcribed. Uh, if you'd like to transcribe this episode, then be my guest. Just let me know in the comments section and I will open up a Google document for you and you can then uh, jump in and start doing some uh, transcribing. As I know that a lot of people 
um, have been doing. Um, the Transcript Collaboration Project is still up and running, of course. In fact, I get the impression it's even more productive than ever at the moment. And there is a transcribing group, which is led by uh, Antonio, a lepster from Spain. And it looks like they're doing some really great work transcribing episodes of the podcast. Go to the website and uh, click Transcripts in the menu and you can find out more about the Transcript Collaboration Project. Uh, there are loads of transcripts which have been finished. I still I need to proofread them all. That's the thing. That's what's holding this whole project back is that I need to take time out to read through those transcripts word for word and make sure they're all good and correct before I publish them on the the website officially. But there are a, there are loads of finished transcripts now. They might not be perfectly proofread yet. But uh, you can find lots of transcripts. Uh, just go to my website and click transcripts and you can find out more about that. So I think we're going to jump straight in here. Um, and um, let's, look, let's go into my word list. So I've, I've actually sort of um, divided my word list into categories. So we've got a general category. Then we have a category called politics. So that's words related to politics. Uh, a category called people. So all different words for, for, for different types of people. Um, legal details. So some legal vocabulary. Um, economics and finance. Stuff relating to money and taxation and things like that. Uh, trade and investment. So that's terminology relating to, uh, well, trade and investment, I would imagine. And then we've got uh, immigration and movement of people. Okay. So a few different uh, categories there. So let's begin at the beginning. That would be a logical place to start, don't you think? With the general category. And we start with the word referendum, which is obviously the, the starting point for this whole thing, because uh, uh, the reason we're talking about Brexit is because uh, the UK is going to have a referendum on its membership of the European Union. The referendum date is the 23rd of June. Okay, so... I imagine you know what a referendum is, but let's go into it anyway. We'll also look at a couple of collocations here. So uh, a referendum is a vote by the electorate on a single question. And the result of the referendum dictates the outcome of a particular decision. OK, so I said a vote by the electorate. The electorate, that means all of the people in a country who can vote in an election. So all the people, all the voting people, that's generally called the electorate. So a referendum is when the electorate vote on a single question. And, you know, usually it's a binary choice, like a in, out, yes, no, that kind of thing. Like um, a couple of years ago, we had the Scottish referendum. And the question was basically, should Scotland be an independent nation? Um, and um, the people of Scotland voted. And the result was... That they decided to, to remain part of the United Kingdom. This time, the question is, should the UK uh, remain a member of the EU or should it leave the EU? So it's remain or leave. OK, so that's, the, that's, that's a referendum. Uh, what's the plural of referendum? Well, it's referendums or referenda. OK, that's the plural. Two, two possibilities, referendums or referenda. Um, now, what about some collocations that go with referendum? What verbs do we use? with referendum. What do you do? Do you do a referendum? No, it's a, it's not as simple as that. Um, first of all, you can call a referendum, or the government or the prime minister can call 
a referendum. That means that, um, let's say, David Cameron called a referendum. That means that he announced that a referendum was going to happen. So he sort of uh, announced that it was going to happen. He called the referendum. Um, another verb is uh, to hold a referendum, which is a, a basically another way of saying to have a referendum. So that might be used in the passive form like this. It could sound like this. Um, so a referendum on European membership is being held on the 23rd of June this year. Okay, to hold a referendum. Um, also, there's the expression to put something to a referendum. So Britain's membership of the European Union is being put to a referendum on the 23rd of June. So if you put something to a referendum, it means you, you, you put the decision to a referendum. So you kind of give the people uh, the choice over a specific decision. Okay, so um, the UK's EU membership is being put to a referendum this summer. Uh, when is a referendum usually called? I mean, what kind of decision um, is put to a referendum? Um, usually it's like big decisions that affect the future of the whole nation. You know, very serious and significant uh, choices. Uh, and it's a, I guess it's a principle of uh, democratic uh, government, isn't it? That uh, if there's a very, very big decision, uh, the government will put it to a referendum in order to, I suppose, see what generally people want um so it's just a way of of making a very very big decision um all right so a, a, the difference between a referendum and an election is that elections are usually um used as a way of choosing representatives so you might have a list of candidates and you have an election to choose the candidate that you want as your representative so that's normally the way an election works but a referendum is more like a choice usually a binary choice like one one option or another option and the whole nation uh votes and then based on that vote based on the outcome of the referendum the government then has a mandate from the people so for example if the choice is to leave the european union then the uk government will have a mandate from the people and that mandate is a sort of like um uh the authority from the people like the people have given uh, the government their uh, uh, what's the word? They've given authority to the government, and the government then have this legitimacy um, because they've they've been instructed by the people to do a certain thing. So that's a mandate, okay? Uh, so uh, if yeah, if the, if the referendum said that we should leave, then the government will go to the European Union. They'll go to Brussels and with a mandate from the people, and the mandate is that they would then need to negotiate an exit from the union, okay? Um, it's probably necessary for me to mention my my personal views on this at, at, at times because um, the language is all great and interesting and useful and stuff like that, but you probably want to get my opinion, don't you? You probably do. I mean, if you heard the previous episode, then you should know, you should have noticed really that I think we should be in the European Union. Now, I know that uh, the union itself is not perfect and that there are some issues with it, uh, but um, my my position is that just because it's not perfect, it doesn't mean we need to run away from it or it doesn't mean that we need to break away from it. OK, I think that uh, the European Union brings more benefits to us than disadvantages. Sure, there are some disadvantages, but the benefits outweigh the costs, uh, in my opinion. And I think it would be 
a big mistake to leave the European Union. One person I noticed, I don't know who it was, someone mentioned in a comment either on my website or on Facebook or something, the idea that actually if the UK left the European Union, nothing would change. I don't think that's the case at all. I think it could be uh, it could result in huge changes, huge. Like, for example, thousands and thousands of jobs could be lost. It could, um, it, it, it would be a potentially very dangerous thing to do for us to just leave the European Union because we are absolutely uh, intimately connected to the Union in many ways, uh, particularly in terms of our economy. And breaking away from the European Union, uh, I think, would have... Um, some really negative uh, consequences. We'll, we'll perhaps come back to that stuff in a bit. Uh, but uh, anyway, let's carry on with the language. So sovereignty is the next word. Sovereignty. And this is a key issue for, for the Brexit, uh, the, the Leave campaign. Because one of the arguments of the Leave campaign is that the European Union somehow is a threat to British sovereignty. Um, because apparently it's undemocratic and and this is uh this somehow undermines Brit- britain's independence as a nation um so sovereignty let's look at that word it's got tricky spelling it's probably worth spelling this one for you s o v e r e i g n t y don't ask me why there's a g in that word uh it's not pronounced so it's actually sovereignty not sovereignty but sovereignty all right so sovereignty means the authority of a state to govern itself. So it means independence or power, self-governing power. That's sovereignty. Okay, so let's look at some collocations. Um, A nation can have sovereignty. Um, A nation can also give up its sovereignty. That means kind of um, give away some of its sovereignty. So give away some power, give away some independence. So one of the arguments of the Leave campaign is that Britain has given up too much sovereignty to the European Union. And it's time we claimed our sovereignty or kind of took back our sovereignty. So we have to have sovereignty, to give up sovereignty, to claim sovereignty. That means kind of like take it uh, or take back sovereignty which is pretty clear if we've given up some sovereignty and you claim it or take it back again it means you just sort of like well uh reclaim the sovereignty all right um also a couple of other collocations we have the verb to undermine sovereignty undermine um if you undermine something it means you weaken it you weaken its position So it means like digging, literally, it means digging underneath the foundations of something. You know, to mine, mine, like a gold mine, a coal mine, diamond mine, it means digging into the ground in order to extract things from the earth. But really, it means digging into the ground. If you undermine something, it means you dig under the ground, underneath the foundations of something, making that thing unstable and weak. For example, if you've got a castle and you undermine the castle, it means digging underneath the castle and then the, the castle becomes weak and it might fall down. Um, but usually we use undermine in a more sort of meta- metaphorical uh, way. In this case, undermining sovereignty. So according to the Leave campaign, the European Union, because it's somehow undemocratic, uh, is undermining the sovereignty of the member states, including the UK. Um, is it? Is it? That's a that's a, a question for debate, I think. Um, 
Also, here's another collocation, and this one's a noun. We have a loss of sovereignty, a loss of sovereignty. For example, you could say that the uh, Britain's membership of the European Union is causing a loss of sovereignty for the UK. All right. Um, those, those are all points for discussion. Adjective is sovereign. For example, we have a sovereign nation, meaning an independent, self-governing nation. We also have the word sovereign debt, which means the debt of a nation. And, you know, after the Eurozone crisis of 2008 and ongoing, we have, you know, quite massive amounts of sovereign debt. The biggest ones being, of course, Greece, perhaps Italy, maybe Spain as well. They have quite high levels of sovereign debt. Every European uh, nation state has sovereign debt. Some of them have more than others. It seems that the UK, well, they say that the UK's economy is improving faster than um, many of the other uh, member states. But I don't know really what the condition of our sovereign debt is. Debt, that's D-E-B-T, debt. Uh, obviously, you don't pronounce the B there. Um, let's, uh, let's now have a look at the idea of the EU being democratic or undemocratic. So, Dem democratic, uh, the opposite being undemocratic. We also have anti-democratic. Um, so if something is undemocratic, it just means it doesn't have the features of... It just means it's not democratic. Uh, but Nigel Farage, the leader of UKIP, um, the Eurosceptic Party, Nigel Farage has said that the EU is anti-democratic, that somehow it is against the principles of democracy. That it's not just undemocratic, that somehow the EU actively attempts to uh, sort of destroy the democratic values of, of, um, of its member states. Is the EU anti-democratic? That seems a bit harsh. Um, we also have the expression democratic deficit. Um, and this is the phrase that's used to describe the lack of democracy in the kind of constitutional structure of the European Union. People say that there is a democratic deficit in the EU. Um, and let's explore that in a moment. Uh, deficit. Let's look at that word first. So a deficit means that there's not enough of something. So that there's a lack of something. And, you know, you have um, typically we have a deficit in a budget. Uh, a budget deficit. This means that uh, if we're talking about a, a state like the UK, we have a, a massive budget deficit. We have a huge budget deficit. This means that we basically, the country doesn't have enough money, or in fact, the country is spending more money than it uh, is making. And as a result, there's a huge gap in our budget every year. We're not making ends meet. Um, and uh, so we have a huge uh, uh, budget deficit. That's where there's not enough money, essentially. And democratic deficit means that there's, enough, there's not enough democracy. Hello there. I'm just interrupting myself here in post-production because I thought it was necessary to add something at this point, add something that I didn't include when I originally recorded this. So this is only, what, the day after I originally recorded and posted this episode. But I just thought it was necessary to do a bit of fact-checking and to clarify something about EU institutions. So the question that I've come to at this point in the podcast is, is the European Union undemocratic? And it's necessary to have a quick look at the EU institutions, all right? Now, I'm actually looking at the European Union's website. This is europa.eu, where they have 
have an overview of some of the EU institutions. Now, I didn't realise there's actually a huge list. There's things like the European Parliament, the European Council, the Council of the European Union, the European Commission, the Court of Justice of the European Union, the European Central Bank, the European Court of Auditors, European External Action Service. The, The list goes on. All right. Now, one of the problems here is that the European Union is bloody complicated. It's a bit of a nightmare when you try to get your head around the different institutions. I'm going to focus on, let's say, the three main things, the three main institutions, and that's the European Parliament, the European Council, and the European Commission. And the question is, is this whole system undemocratic? Okay. Now, a principle for me of a democratic institution is that the people involved in making the decisions have been elected. They've been chosen by the electorate. Okay. So um, let's start with the European Parliament. What what is it? What does it do? Um, Basically, the European Parliament is 751 members of the European Parliament. Okay. Um, And it is the EU's uh, lawmaking body. Okay, it's directly elected by EU voters every five years. Okay, and the last elections were in May 2014. So it is directly elected. All 751 MEPs are directly elected by voters in different EU countries every five years. Every country selects a number of um, MEPs um, to form part of the European Parliament. Okay, the the EU Parliament has got three main roles. The um, first uh, is legislative, then supervisory, and then budgetary. Uh, Essentially, uh, in terms of the legislative part, uh, that's in, that's relating to laws. So essentially, the um, EU Parliament um, is involved in passing EU laws together with the Council of the EU based on European Commission proposals. They also um, are involved in the democratic scrutiny of all EU institutions. That means that they have to pay attention to whether other EU institutions are being democratic. So it's actually their job to kind of be like the democratic police of... Um, of uh, the the other institutions, you could say. And also, they're there to establish the EU budget together with the council. Uh, the main thing there is that they are elected. Okay, so EU Parliament, in my opinion, democratically elected. Then we've got the European Council. Um, and according to Europa.eu, the European Council brings together EU leaders to set the EU's political agenda. And it represents the highest level of political cooperation between the EU countries. Um, So basically, the members of the EU Council are all of the heads of state or heads of government of the EU countries. Okay. Also in there, you've got the European Commission president and also a high representative for foreign affairs and security policy. But the, most of the people in there are heads of state. So, for example, David Cameron. So, again, elected, elected in their own countries. Um, then we come on to, well, there's also the Council of the European Union, a fourth one. Um, in this list here. And the Council of the European Union, oh dear, it's a bit like, I think it's a bit like the European Council. Certainly sounds similar, doesn't it? You've got the European Council and the Council of the European Union. Uh, And this is made up of government ministers from each EU country. Okay. Um, So let's say they're talking about, um, uh, let's say they're talking about uh, justice 
you'd have the justice ministers from all of the EU countries uh, would form the Council of the European Union for a for a discussion about justice, for example. Okay, uh, their their role um, is to negotiate and adopt EU laws and to coordinate EU policies. Complicated, isn't it? They all seem to be doing the same thing. The EU Commission. Now, this is the one that people say is not democratic. Um, so, essentially, the EU Commission is made up of a team, or they call it a college, uh, a team of commissioners, and there's one from each EU country. Okay? So, um, this is the EU's politically independent executive arm. And it's alone responsible for drawing up proposals for new European legislation. Drawing up, that means they write proposals. So these are uh, the early stages of laws, like laws or legislation in its very early stage. It's written or drawn up, drafted uh, by the European Commission. Um, which, and those, those proposals are then sent to the European Parliament and the Council of EU uh, the, okay, to vote on. Complicated. So essentially, they propose new laws. Uh, they manage EU policy and allocate EU funding. So they're the ones who uh, decide where the money's going to go. So they allocate funding. They uh, sort of um, select areas for EU spending. They enforce EU law together with the Court of Justice and they represent the EU internationally. And they're not elected. Uh, but there is a, um, a member from each country. So fair enough, they're not the elected ones. Um, so that's, I guess, the one, that's the institution that people point to when they say that the EU is undemocratic. But, you know, the other institutions are uh, made up of democratically elected members and they, they do act as checks and balances against each other. So I think really it's a, it's obviously sort of persuasive rhetoric to make statements like the EU is completely undemocratic. I think that's not completely true and it's just persuasive language. So that's that's my little bit of fact checking about EU institutions. Let's now get back into this rather complex and yet linguistically rich episode of the podcast, okay? I think it's easy to be biased, you know, and by biased, I mean unfairly prejudiced against something. And it depends on how you view the European project as a whole. Um, I think there are several ways to look at the EU, uh, several points of view, and those points of view will involve different types of language. You know, those, those points of view kind of inform the way in which you talk about the European Union. For example, if you're a Eurosceptic, if you're someone who basically believes that uh, Britain's economy should not be subject to any regulation and that um, immigration is the cause of all of our problems um, and that you think that uh, the, the period before uh, we were in the European Union was some sort of golden age where everything was great, um, then you'll probably end up talking about the EU with certain types of pejorative language, you know? Whereas if you are in favour of the European Union, you're probably going to be talking about uh, talking about it in more um, positive ways. Uh, ultimately, even when they are... Even when Eurosceptics and Europhiles are talking about the same thing, 
when they're basically saying the same thing, they will use slightly, you know, they'll use quite colourful language to push their agenda on what they're saying. See what I mean? This basically is political rhetoric. I'm talking about ways of talking about something in order to persuade people to think or act in a certain way. Rhetoric. R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C. Political rhetoric. So that means basically persuasive language, often used by politicians. So rhetoric is sort of really important because this is the way in which people talk um, in a persuasive way. Um, And uh, using certain words will imply certain emotions and associations. For example, describing the movement of migrants into the UK. If you describe the, the movement of migrants into the UK as a tidal wave of immigration, a tidal wave, you know, a tsunami of immigration, then naturally that's language which is going to create a certain amount of fear isn't it? If you describe it as a tidal wave of immigration, obviously a tidal wave is is really bad. It's like really negative and dangerous and destructive. Um, When essentially you could equally say, you know, um, I don't know, an influx of immigration, which is a slightly more neutral word rather than saying a tidal wave of immigration. You're talking about the same thing, basically means the same thing but the tidal wave of immigration suggests something far more dangerous and something we should be much more afraid of something very damaging so it's just differences in language which will reveal the kind of political opinion or the ideological uh, opinion of the people speaking all right and this is really the this is how rhetoric works and it's very persuasive because it works on a subliminal level. If you're just using negative language to talk about a subject, you, you don't even need to be saying immigrants are the cause of all of our problems. That's a bit obvious. Instead, you can just say, you know, um, our continued membership of this undemocratic super state will lead to further and further tidal waves of um, immigration. You know, that's not an explicit way of of saying it but uh it's implicit the the words being used there imply lots of negative things so that's very persuasive language um okay describing the movement of migrants as a tidal wave yeah it's language designed to create fear and hatred and uh for me the eurosceptics use all sorts of emotional and dramatic language to talk about the eu but in my opinion it's mainly just rhetoric And the same things could be said in far less dramatic language. For example, this sentence, which is not something that anyone has ever said, uh, but it's typical, it's the kind of thing that uh, a Brexiteer would say. So this isn't a specific quote from a real person, but it's exactly the sort of thing uh, that a Brexiteer would say. And it's full of rhetoric, okay? So this is just an example of some political rhetoric, okay? So this this sentence... um, The European Union is composed of faceless and unelected bureaucrats who undermine the sovereignty of the UK by imposing petty legislation which stifles British businesses and kills the spirit of this great nation that I love. Okay, so let's break that down. First of all, it was the EU is composed of faceless bureaucrats. So faceless. All right. Now, obviously, they're not faceless, of course. They have faces. 
They might be bureaucrats sitting in offices in Brussels, but they do have faces. This isn't iRobot or something. You know, they're not just like face, faceless Eurobots. They're actually people. So they're not faceless. Um, now, the reason that we don't know their faces is just because they're not on the news all the time because they don't have to be on the news. They're not there to get our attention or to sell themselves to us like other politicians do. There's a reason why uh, a lot of the elected politicians are well-known faces, because they're constantly on the TV trying to sell up, sell us their policies and sell us themselves, you know? But the, the, the Euro, Euro bureaucrats, they're, they're not there to do that. They're just there to make legislation. So naturally, we don't know what they look like. So describing them as faceless may actually be true, but it's not necessarily a reason for them to be considered to be such a bad thing. You know, um, they are faceless, but there's a reasonable reason for that. Um, um, so they're basically the, these bureaucrats are there to do boring things like propose legislation, which could be used to help the European Union do things, you know, do the things it does, which are mostly boring things, but they're useful. Like, for example, making laws to protect the environment or something like that. So fair enough, these guys are bureaucrats. Um, they are lawmakers. It's not that exciting, but they do have faces. Uh, so that's faceless bureaucrats. The next thing is unelected. So they're faceless, unelected bureaucrats. Unelected. Okay, fair enough. The European Union commissioners aren't elected. But even the UK government has lots of bureaucrats who aren't elected. And there are undemocratic elements to most uh, democratic governments. Most of these governments have some d undemocratic parts to them. For example, the Queen. Um, and now she is a very important part of our constitutional framework, the monarchy, but she's not elected. She's not even chosen by people who were elected by, by us. So there, there's really no democratic element to the monarchy at all. Um, but Eurosceptics rarely talk about the undemocratic parts of the UK's government. Uh, instead, they choose to just focus their attention on undemocratic elements within the European Union because they, they're focusing on that as a weak point in order to push their anti-European agenda. Again, fair enough, the Queen is not involved in creating legislation except for some routine powers, which she has, like she officially gives um, assent to new laws which are passed. Uh, these are routine powers which she doesn't really use, you know, they're just administrative things. And the European Commission does seem to be the driving force behind the creation of new laws in Europe, but other EU institutions other EU institutions are made up of elected representatives, so it's not completely undemocratic, all right? Also, the member states all agreed to the terms of the European Union when they signed the treaties, so it's not like the whole arrangement has been forced onto us. So um, it may be true that some of the lawmakers in Brussels are not directly uh, elected, but um, whether that's a good or bad thing is debatable, I think. Okay. Also, the, the next bit of rhetoric there was the EU undem undermines sovereignty by imposing petty legislation. Well, the legislation. Now, the Eurosceptics choose to view the legislation as a purely bad thing. Um, but is it? 
first of all, the project, the European project, was set up in order to ensure social and economic stability for the benefit of all the member states who willingly signed the treaties and agreed to give a certain amount of control to the project. That's the point of the project, you know. Uh, And the spirit in which um, the European project has been carried out has always been one of peaceful cooperation for mutual benefit. Ultimately, it's about preventing another world war. I mean, that was the original concept behind the European Union, something that Winston Churchill really believed in. He believed in the United States of Europe. He thought that that was a, um, uh, uh, an important thing to, to achieve, to bring the European nations closer together, um, to unify them economically, so that they would have no reason to fight each other again. Because, um, the, you know, the Brexiteers talk about some golden age in the past when we weren't part of the European Union, but it's, it wasn't that long ago that we were actually involved in armed conflict with, the, with our neighbours. Um, which is the sort of, um, that's the worst that it can get to. Um, so, yeah, the European Union was set up originally to, to try and prevent war and to encourage peaceful cooperation. And the treaties that underpin the Union and the whole setup of this project um, were, you know, agreed to by all the member states so we actually have given our 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 um what's the word for it we've we've already agreed to cooperate with this project we knew what it, what what was involved and in fact the uk was instrumental in creating the whole thing in the first place we drafted a lot of the legislation a lot of the 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 original uh, agreements were drafted in the uk so we designed part of it so you know i think it's a misconception that um, somehow the European Union is some sort of foreign force which is imposing itself onto us. Um, It's just a misconception which is based on some sort of isolationist, um, small-minded, little England mentality. The UK is part of the European Union. We wrote a lot of the, um, the, the documents and we are part of the whole thing. It's not some... Uh, outside force imposing itself on us but we are actually part and parcel of it Um, so you know again it makes you think of the geography that little uh, stretch of water between England and France that cuts us off from the continent means that mentally a lot of people think that the the UK is somehow separate and that any any legislation from the European Union is being imposed onto us without us being involved in it at all but we're actually part of the project already um uh so about this thing about petty legislation so there is a lot of legislation and some of it seems a bit petty for example the laws regulating the shape of vegetables all right which is always the example that's that's brought up by the um the euro skeptics but generally the legislation from the european union is imposed on all the member states for good reason 
for example, to protect the rights of workers, to ensure that products that we consume are safe, to make sure that customers are not being ripped off, for example, by mobile phone companies that would like to charge us massive amounts for using our phones in Europe. But thanks to the European Union, the negotiating power of the European Union, the, f- the phone companies aren't allowed to charge us huge amounts of money for making phone calls. Um, um, and also the legislation um, is imposed to standardise equipment and services between the countries, which makes it much, much easier to import and export uh, products between the countries. Um, it's there to establish environmental legislation to, you know, for things like clean air and clean water and also to help the poorer and less developed regions of the European Union to live with the the, the sort of right kind of quality of life. Uh, and that includes parts of the UK. That includes parts of Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and Northern England where um, there is less development. Uh, so the European Union actually... Uh, spends money and passes legislation to try and uh, improve life in these areas. And what's wrong with that? What is wrong with that? Um, Now, also, the word imposed, because legislation is always imposed. That's a collocation. Now, that sounds pejorative. It sounds negative, doesn't it, to say that legislation is imposed on us. Now, in fact, the law is imposed, but we accept it, you know, So, in fact, we take the legislation. They don't just force it onto us. They're not forcing us to accept these laws at gunpoint. Um, We, in fact, uh, agree to accept them. And then finally, the bit about this nation, this great nation that I love, that's just nationalistic rhetoric. Because most people love their country, don't they? So, as a politician, if you bang on about how great the nation is, then it's likely to inspire people. You're in, you're likely to get the, uh, um, you know, the acceptance of people if you if you mention how wonderful the country is. Um, and you know, if you're seen to be doing things out of a love for the country, then how can you be doing the wrong thing? As long as you love the country and you think that Britain is great, then that's what matters, right? For example. I think we should get out of the EU. We should put hundreds of thousands of jobs at risk and cause years of uncertainty that could seriously affect our our economy for decades because Britain is a great nation. Well, it might not be so great if we leave the European Union, which is our pro- which is our project too. It's not some foreign power. Um, all right. Anyway, now back to the language. So that was a. Um, that was just the general bit there. And we looked at words like sovereignty, uh, democratic, uh, bureaucracy, biased, rhetoric, and things like that. Let's move on to politics. So the next word I have here is a manifesto. A manifesto, all right? So that is a public declaration of policy promises. Um, and political parties publish manifestos before elections. And a manifesto is basically a set of promises. For example, if we get into power, we will raise the minimum wage. That is a manifesto promise. Okay, so, uh, for example, before the election of last year, the Conservatives published their manifesto, which contained all their promises, things that they promised to do if they got into power. And one of the manifesto promises, one of the things they pledged to do, um, that was written into that manifesto, was that uh, they would have a referendum on Europe. Okay, so that's another reason why we're having this referendum, because it was promised in the Conservatives' manifesto last year. Um, Next word is backbenchers. 
backbenchers. These are people, okay? Um, backbenchers. Pe- backbenchers are people who sit on the back benches in the houses in the House of Commons. Okay, so you know the House of Commons. That's where in London, in Westminster, that's where um, all of our members of Parliament sit. You've got the government on the left. Um, on one side and then you have the opposition on the other side uh, the government that's the conservative party at the moment on the front bench you've got uh, the the most important members of the government the the heads uh, of each ministry or the ministers for example you've got like the minister of education the uh, chancellor of the exchequer who's like the finance minister you have the foreign uh, affairs minister uh, defense minister and so on uh, and so forth um, they sit on the front bench, um, but all the way at the back, you have the benches at the back. So benches, these are like the seats that, that they sit on, these long seats. There are benches at the back, and um, on those benches, you have senior members of the party who are not in cabinet positions. They're not ministers, but they have a lot of influence over the general direction of the party. They're often well-established senior members of the party. And they tend to sit on the back benches of the House of Commons. Benches, that's plural, B-E-N-C-H-E-S, one bench, two benches. And then backbenchers, that's B-A-C-K-B-E-N-C-H-E-R-S, benchers and benches. You hear the difference? One bench, two benches. And then conservative backbenchers. Benches, benchers. Yeah. So backbenchers, senior members of the party. And um, so if you ever see footage of debates in the House of Commons, then you'll see the, uh, the, the, the MPs all shouting at each other. And they kind of heckle and shout and make fun of each other. And you'll see at the back, the backbenchers... Um, who, yeah, they're basically important people because they have a lot of influence over the the direction of the party. And I think that David Cameron was facing quite a lot of pressure from backbenchers over Europe, and he had to show that he was taking a strong position on Europe. And that's, again, one of the reasons why he called the referendum in the first place. So backbenchers. Then I've got the word rhetoric, but I think I've already been through that. Um, So, well, let's see rhetoric, uh, persuasive language or persuasive speaking. Um, And uh, for example, we have political rhetoric, uh, the language used by politicians to persuade people. Um, And we've we've had statements like, you know, Nigel Farage saying, the European Union looks like a burning building, but there's an exit door. And I suggest on the on June the 23rd, we take it. So he's compared the European Union to a burning building which is obviously a, a very negative and very dramatic image, isn't it? Is it a burning building? Really? That's, that's a bit extreme. Um, and Boris Johnson has said uh, about Brexit, he says, or the referendum, he says, this is a moment for Britain to be brave, to reach out, not to hug the skirts of nurse in Brussels and refer all decisions to someone else. Again, more rhetoric. He's calling on Britain to be brave. Uh, now, Britain can be brave in the European Union as well. You know, it can be brave in the European Union. That It's just as brave to be in the European Union. Um, and he said that we shouldn't hug the skirts of nurse in Brussels. So, nurse. 
he's suggesting that Brussels or the European Union is like a nurse, you know, like a, a woman, it could be a man, but probably a woman who looks after you. And if you are a child, you might hug the skirt of nurse, like hold on to her skirt and hug it because you um, need her protection or something like that. And it's like a slightly fairly pathetic image, isn't it, of someone hugging the skirt of nurse? Ah, like, oh, you know, help! I need your help, kind of thing. It's quite a pathetic image. Um, so, again, just rhetoric, really, just saying Britain's brilliant. We need to be brave. We shouldn't be hugging the skirt of nurse in Brussels. Um, Okay, right, let's move on to people, the next category. So I've already talked about Eurosceptics. I've said that word loads of times. Um, So a sceptic is someone who is sceptical of something. So someone who doesn't really believe something or someone who thinks that something's not true or that they are um, unsure of something. They're not completely convinced by something. They don't believe in it. So in this case, we're talking about Eurosceptics. These are people who don't believe that the European Union is a good thing, basically. We have other types of sceptic. You know, for example, if you're talking about, I don't know, UFOs. um, You know, there are people who believe that aliens exist and that they've visited the planet in ufos you know spaceships and you might get skeptics who um you know don't really believe those stories and in fact they they look at ways of debunking those stories so skeptics to be skeptical of something uh in the uk we spell that with a c s c e p t i c a l and then in north american english skeptic is spelt with a k s k e p t i c skeptic in this case, Eurosceptic. Okay. Um, then also we have the word Brexiteers. This is the nickname for people who who support the uh, Leave campaign. They're called Brexiteers. Um, and then we've got words like a proponent or a supporter. So a proponent is someone who, who supports something. For example, you've got a proponent of the EU or a supporter of the EU. Okay. And then on the other side, you've got um, opponents. So proponents are people who are for and opponents are people who are against. All right. So proponents, supporters, and then opponents as well. Okay. Um, Then we've got uh, people who are for or against. Um, Yeah. Okay. Now, since we're talking about politics uh, and people here, um, politics is the subject. Uh, What do we call people who work in politics? Uh, they're called politicians. That's the official word. I'm sure that you could think of some nicknames for them as well. Uh, but the official word is politicians. Uh, they work in politics. What's the adjective? It's political. And uh, a noun, like the laws or ideas that are produced by politicians, that's policy. Okay. For example, you talk about economic policy or immigration policy which is made by politicians, okay? Um, Let's see, what else? I also have had the word bureaucrats already. These are these unelected people who do government government work, bureaucrats. The system is bureaucracy, and the adjective there is bureaucratic. We also have the expression red tape. Um, And red tape just means all of the laws, all the bureaucracy, basically, uh, all the laws and things and controls and regulations. And, um, you know, you might hear um, Eurosceptics talking about how they they hate uh, the red tape from Brussels just means the the uh, all of the laws of the bureaucracy. It's called red tape because often these documents are bound together with red ribbons 
like red tape. So the red tape is used to like tie all of the papers together. Um, so that's red tape now has become synonymous with um, laws, legislation, bureaucracy from the government. Um, okay. All right, then. Let's move on to legal details then. Um, so we've, first of all, we've got a treaty or treaties. These are agreements between nations which are formally concluded and then ratified by all of the, the nations to the treaties. So the European Union is based on treaties. These are these agreements between all the member states. Um, okay. Uh, then the European Union obviously is, is um, responsible for producing a lot of legislation. So legislation, it means laws, basically. So you've got laws, that's plural, countable, one law, two laws. But then legislation is uncountable, all right? Um, so the European Union produces legislation, which is binding in the different member states. Binding legislation. Binding means that you have to comply with the legislation. It's legally binding. It means that it has to be complied with. Um, other words for legislation might be things like controls or rules. Also, we have regulations and directives, okay, from the European Union. Uh, European Union regulations, they're just a form of legislation. And regulations are binding and they must be directly applied as law in each member state. And then directives are a little bit different. Directives basically set goals, like uh, objectives, which have to be achieved but it's up to the nation state to enact their own laws. So essentially regulations just come through from the European Union as fully written pieces of legislation which have to be applied as law in each country. And directives, basically the, the European Union says, basically I want you to achieve this. So for example, your air quality has to be at this level, but it's up to you to make your own laws as long as the end result is achieved. Those are, those are directives. Okay, so regulations and directives, two types of EU legislation. Um, so if you follow regulations or you follow law, uh, you have to, the, the expression there is to comply with, so you comply with regulations. So the EU um, uh, passes legislation which is binding in every member state, and every member state has to comply with those regulations, okay? Um, okay, um, let's see. Uh, an example of a piece of EU legislation is the Working Time Directive. The Working Time Directive, which basically states that. Uh, um, uh, there's a, a maximum number of working hours. It's a, it's a way of protecting the rights of workers within the European Union. And the Working Time Directive states that uh, people, I think it's 35 hours. I think so. I'm not entirely sure exactly what the maximum number is. But the Working Time Directive just states that uh, workers are not should not be obliged to work more than a certain number of hours a week. And the, the uh, Brexiteers would like Britain to be able to opt out of the working time directive they don't want to be subject to the working time directive um, but I mean I think that it's probably good for people to be protected don't you think because there's a chance that workers might get exploited um, so a lot of these laws that come from the European Union are based on human rights you know, they state that workers shouldn't be obliged to work a certain number of hours a week because it's, you know, bad for their health and things like that. Um, so anyway, the Brexiteers would probably like to opt out of the Working Time Directive, to opt out of something. 
We also have the expression to opt into something. So if you opt out of something, it basically means you choose or you take the option to be out of something. And if you opt into something, you choose or you take the option to be in. Okay, uh, so, you know, maybe Britain's going to opt out of the European Union. Uh, we will see on the 24th of June when the results come in. Um, also, I've got an expression to get concessions so concessions, all right. So in a um, in a negotiation, um, you're you're looking for concessions from the other side. You might need to make concessions as well in order to get what you want. So essentially, a concession is something that you give away. Um, so when David Cameron went into Europe uh, to renegotiate the UK's membership of the Union, he was looking for concessions. He was looking for more concessions from the European Union. For example, he wanted, I think, he wanted Britain to be able to opt out of the Working Time Directive, and he wanted uh, the the Union to give us concessions on immigration so that we would have more control over who came into the country and, and so on. Um, so we wanted to take, con we wanted to get concessions uh, from the European Union. Okay, it's the same in any negotiation. Let's say, for example, you want to buy a car, uh, and the price is €20,000, but uh, you want to buy it for €17,000. Now, you might need to make a few concessions if you want that price. For example, you might need to agree to like limited uh, insurance or, um, I don't know, like, you know, um, maybe you, you might uh, have to give other concessions like maybe the quality of the stereo system in the car or something like that, you know, you might need to reduce those things in order to actually get the car at the price you want. So if you give things away, you, you're making concessions. All right, let's move on to economics and finance. Um, and um, so we start with the budget. Um, the budget is the annual estimate of revenue and spending. It's basically a spending plan. How much you expect to, how much money you expect to come in, and how much money you expect to to spend. So that's your budget. So you know any company, and in fact any country will have a budget every year, and it's an estimate or a, a guideline, a plan for um, for spending and making money. Uh, and if you have a budget deficit, as we said before, it means that there's a gap between the amount of money that's coming in and the amount of money that's going out. All right. Um, now, we, the EU has a budget because the EU, of course, spends money on, um, in, in different areas every year. So the EU has a, a budget. And part of that budget, well, the, 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 money, the, the money for that budget comes from contributions from the member states. So every year, each member state contributes a certain amount of money. Um, and then the EU uh, spends money every year, too. So we've got Contributions and spending. Contributions is the money that's given to the European Union by the member states. And then spending is the money that the European Union gives back to, um, to the different uh, uh, states in various forms. Okay? EU spending mainly goes on uh, creating economic and social cohesion within the region. Um, you know, like uh, spending money on sustainable development environmental protection, agriculture, support for farmers, um, and things like that. Various different like public buildings, for example, in the UK have been built using EU money, that sort of thing. So one of the arguments of the Brexiteers is that the UK could save money by um, uh, avoiding having to, to contribute 
to the EU budget every year. Okay, uh, for example, in 2015, last year, the UK contributed £13 billion to the European budget, and we received um, less than that. We received £4.5 billion in spending. So uh, that's a net contribution of £8.5 billion, which seems like a lot of money. I mean, it, obviously, it is a lot of money. Um, I, I think you probably agree that it's a lot of money. I don't know who you are. Maybe you're a super-duper billionaire um, listening to this podcast, this free podcast. Maybe £8.5 billion is just peanuts to you. If that is the case, you could consider making a donation to this podcast um, if you fancy it. Uh, but anyway, so I said the net contribution of the UK is £8.5 billion. All right. So let's have a look at the word net. So net just means after costs have been taken away. Uh, so the final amount is net. So we talk about net amounts and gross amounts. Uh, probably a good way to look at this would be to consider your paycheck, uh, your wage check that you get at the end of every month from your job. And usually uh, your paycheck will break down all of the money that you've earned and all the money that you've given as tax. And uh, so you've got a gross amount, which is, you know, Usually, it should be higher than the net amount. So let's say your gross amount is £3,000. And then after they take tax, let's say they take £500 of tax. Uh, could be more. Uh, let's say it's £500 of tax. And then your, your net uh, salary or your net wage would be £2,500. Okay. So the UK gives £13 billion and receives £4.5 billion. So the net contribution is 8.5 billion pounds gross contribution 13 billion pounds so a net contribution of 8.5 billion pounds um now as i mentioned with my dad or i think my dad made this point uh, that's actually less than 0.5 percent of our gdp so to put it into context uh, it's not that much when you're looking at the budget of a whole nation um 8.5 billion pounds is less than 0.5% of our gross domestic product, um, uh, which is also, it's only 7% of what we spend on our national health service, the NHS, every year. So basically, we spend way less on the European budget than we do on the UK budget. Our, our EU contribution is far lower than it is uh, than the money we spend on our own budget. You know, we give far more money to our own administration every year. All the money goes towards good things. Well, that's arguable. And the Brexiteers might say that there's lots of bureaucrats in Brussels who get paid too much money and they're on the EU gravy train, the European gravy train. That's basically a, a, an expression that means that they are taking advantage of... The, the the benefits of being employed by the European Union because they get lots of money, they get expenses, personal expenses, they eat in really good restaurants and things like that, that basically they are living a really good life where they get lots of money um, and it, it, you know, it comes from the taxpayer's pocket. Uh, that's one of the big arguments. Um, so, fair enough, the bureaucrats receive expenses and they receive salaries. But so do any administrative staff in similar positions in any member states. Like we've got civil servants in the UK who uh, take a salary from the state. They're paid by the taxpayer. But um, 
you know, again, the Eurosceptics don't go on about them. So it's just a normal part of any administration. There's always going to be some staff who get paid uh, and the money comes from tax contributions. And, OK, the, the administrative staff, the bureaucrats, could probably do with a pay cut. But it doesn't mean that the entire thing is screwed and that we need to pull ourselves out of the union. I mean, there are complaints and problems, but it doesn't mean the whole thing's screwed, does it? Um I also wanted to mention the rebate. So Margaret Thatcher um, in the 1980s managed to negotiate to, to get some of our money back. So we make some contributions to the EU every year. But because of Thatcher's negotiation, we actually receive a rebate. That's like a repayment. So some of the money goes back to us because basically she argued that it wasn't fair, the spending system wasn't fair and that, for example, French farmers received more money in spending than we did and that it wasn't fair. And so to, to make it balanced, we would basically receive a repayment. So a rebate, it's, it's a, a repayment of um, like tax contributions. Okay, uh, you, can get, you can get a personal tax rebate as well which is always a wonderful thing when that happens. For example, if you've been paying too much tax for about a year, if you've got the wrong tax code and you've been paying too much, ta- too much tax every month, then eventually the, the inland revenue, the, the tax uh, authority, will work out that you've been spending too much on tax and they'll give you a rebate and you might receive, you know, a thousand or two thousand uh, pounds as a tax repayment and as a lump sum, which is always a wonderful experience of course um the eurozone the eurozone that's basically a way of referring to all the countries that have the euro as their currency it's known as the eurozone um and um the eurozone was was set up really to try and prevent too much fluctuation like currency fluctuation across europe so previously the countries had their own currencies but it 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 was a little bit unstable because the different currencies would have different values, which made it much harder to trade between the different places. And so the euro was set up to try and create economic stability so that there wasn't a lot of you know, uh, uh, currency fluctuation, which again would make it easier for each country to sell and buy from each other. So it's all about sort of trying to help trade between the nations. And that's why the Eurozone was created. The UK chose not to be in the Euro. Um, and, well, this is all part of the, uh, the, the way that the UK has got this weird, unique, unique relationship with the EU. I mean, we've got an amazing deal with the EU. We do, because we managed to have our cake and eat it too. That's an expression that means that you have the best of both worlds. You know, you kind of, you get the best. You, you, you have a cake and you also eat a cake, but you can have it as well. Does that, do you know, you know what I mean? It's good to have a cake, isn't it? Because you'd be like, I've got a cake. I'm happy because I've got a cake. But you also want to eat your cake. But if you eat the cake, then you don't have a cake. So what you want really is to be able to eat the cake and have the cake, which is kind of impossible, really. But that's sort of what we've done with Europe. Britain is able to have its cake and eat it too. So we're members of the European single market. We get the benefits of um, of free trade and yet we don't have to be subject to uh, the, 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 the uh, we're not subject to the economic controls of the Eurozone and uh, we're also not in the Schengen Agreement which means that we, you know, we still do get border control 
uh, and things like that. So we've, we've actually got a lot of benefits and we, we've managed to negotiate ourselves out of a lot of the, 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 the disadvantages. So we managed to have our cake and eat it too. Um, there's, there's a lot more language relating to economics and finance, and that includes terms like risk, confidence, investment, and so on. Uh, and I've put that into the next category, which is trade and investment. So the European Union is a free trade zone, uh, and there are trade agreements which basically have established um, sort of a, a low tax area so that it's easy for businesses to buy and sell goods and services across the whole area. Okay, it's a free trade block. Uh, and that means that we have free movement of goods and services and people. Okay. Now, the benefits of being part of this tree, free, this free trade block are that uh, there are no tariffs. So tariffs are basically taxes which are imposed on exports and imports. For example, if you're, let's say, Australian uh, and you want to export or let's think of a cliched Australian product. Let's say you want to ex export uh, didgeridoos into uh, the European Union, then uh, you might have to pay tax. The European Union might charge a special didgeridoo import tax, which means that you know the money that you make as a didgeridoo manufacturer is going to be reduced by having to pay these special taxes. Okay, That's totally normal, and any country will impose taxes on imports as a way of protecting the industries within their countries. For example, maybe the UK or maybe France has got their own didgeridoo manufacturers. They might not be as good as Australian didgeridoo ones, but maybe we manufacture our own didgeridoos. And so naturally, we want to protect our didgeridoo makers. And so we, we, we do that by making it harder for Australian didgeridoo makers to sell their didgeridoos in the EU because they have to pay tax. But if you're in the EU, you don't have to pay tax when you sell didgeridoos within the European single market. Okay, that was an example of didgeridoos, obviously. Um, but it just shows that essentially, um, if, if you're a manufacturer in the UK, it's great to sell in Europe because you don't have to... Um, you don't have to pay a lot of tax. You don't have to pay trade tariffs. Okay, so this is a great benefit for manufacturers or any companies that want to sell uh, to the Europe to to Europe. You know, so it's a it's a really strong market. Um, and in fact, fifty percent of our trade in the UK is with the European single market. Fifty percent of it. Um, so coming out of the European Union would um, endanger that market. Now, the Brexiteers will say, well, yes, but if we came out, we would just renegotiate trade deals with uh, the European Union and we would continue to trade with the European single market and we, we, we would not be subject to trade tariffs. Now, that might be true, but it would take a hell of a long time to come out of the single market and then come back in with exactly the same benefits. I think that it's almost unnecessary. Why bother to do that? Why why? tear up all of the agreements that we've already got in place? Why bring all of our trade to a halt? Why disrupt all of that business just so that we have to sign new, negotiate and sign new agreements to do exactly the same thing? Why is it necessary? The only reason that it's necessary is because it would mean that we could escape the legislation uh, that's imposed from Brussels on all the other businesses that don't trade with the European Union. But the fact is 
that if we came out of the single market and then renegotiated our way back in, that we would still have to um, comply with all of the uh, rules and regulations of that market because that's just the way it works. And the European single market is far too big for us to negotiate, um, you know, everything on our own terms. They're just not going to make concessions to us. Um, yeah, and also the Brexiteers will argue that we can, we can, if we come out of the single market, we can then be free to negotiate new trade agreements with other markets around the world, like China and America and Brazil and so on. Um, but again, I think this is an unknown. How can we be sure that the Americans will suddenly want to give us wonderful trade deals? Uh, and in fact, the evidence seems to suggest the opposite, that Barack Obama himself has said that uh, if the UK is out of the European Union, then the US is more likely to want to do deals with the, Europe, with the European Union. They're going to be more competitive. Um, so it's a huge risk to assume that if we come out of the European single market, that we will then be in a great position to negotiate trade deals with everyone else. That, in fact, we might not be this great trading block that we imagine ourselves to be. And in fact, we're probably much safer inside the European Union for that reason. And in fact, this is the argument that really has been lost by the Brexiteers. They've lost the economic arguments because the vast majority of economists in the UK and around the world agree that um, it would be very damaging and dangerous and risky for the UK to come out of the single market. And, it's, and it would be unnecessary as well. Um, and um, I mean, if you think about the financial markets, for example, if you think about uh, the banking system, now that's very sensitive, extremely sensitive. It's all really based on confidence. You know, it's all about projections for the future. Uh, you get these risk managers and financial experts um, who make all their decisions based on future predictions. Now, if the UK suddenly decides it's going to leave the European Union, that is like a huge black hole. We've got no idea what would be the consequence. It's all based on nationalistic rhetoric and people saying, Britain's a great nation. And we can stand on our own two feet and all that kind of thing. Now, that's very, that's just hot air. That's not really anything that can be the foundation of really sound financial investments. In fact, quite the opposite. What banks need, what financial um, like transactions and uh, hedge funds really need is security and uh, uh, no risk. And those are the conditions in which a financial sector can really thrive. That's how the hedge funds are a success, because they thrive on confidence. And uh, Brexit is an extremely risky move, and it would be, I think, really disastrous for our financial markets. Um, okay, uh, For example, the foreign investors. If you've got other companies from around the world, where are they going to invest? Are they going to invest in the UK with its you know, with this uncertain future? Um, are they going to decide to set up companies in the UK uh, if, for example, the UK is out of the single market? I mean, look at a car manufacturer. If you think of Nissan, the Japanese car manufacturer. Nissan have got uh, factories in the north of England, in Sunderland. They employ thousands of people in those communities. Uh, they, they, you know, 
thousands and thousands of people work in the Nissan factory, British people working in those jobs. And the reason it's profitable for Nissan to have that factory in Sunderland is because, first of all, there's some expertise, okay, it's an experience. So there is a uh, there are people who are skilled. There are skilled workers in that part of the country who've got experience in in uh, manufacturing of cars, um, and also Nissan have access to the single market. If they're manufacturing their cars in England, they can sell those cars in Europe and they don't have to pay these trade tariffs. So it's very profitable for Nissan to build their cars in England and sell them in Europe. Okay, um, And it, it, it just makes great sense. It's good business. Now, if the UK leaves the European Union and we come out of the single market and suddenly any products that we uh, export into the European Union... Uh, will suddenly be subject to uh, these uh, large trade tariffs. And, you know, maybe those tariffs could be renegotiated, but that's going to take time. And basically, it would be bad for business. And companies like Nissan or maybe BMW or any other manufacturers uh, might decide it's just bad business for them to be based in England or anywhere else in the UK. And, you know, many of these companies have said that they would move their business into Europe. They'd move it to Paris. They'd move it to, I don't know, somewhere else, the Czech Republic, for example. Very good for those European countries because there'd be a lot of jobs available, uh, but very bad for Britain. Suddenly, a lot of inward investment would stop. Okay? Um, All right, so that's inward investment. Inward investment there. Um, And, you know, all these things affect jobs. And as we know, jobs are essential for basically the livelihood of people in a country. People need jobs. And if they don't have jobs, then, you know, obviously they won't have any money. And we're looking at sort of uh, lots of people suddenly living in uh, on the poverty line. Um, and there's no guarantee that leaving the European Union would suddenly create lots of jobs. I think the argument at this point comes to immigration. And I guess the Brexiteers will say, well, if we leave the European Union, that will allow us to control immigration. And um, then there would be more jobs for British people because the jobs wouldn't be taken by immigrants. But let's have a look at immigration then. Let's have a look at that. So we're looking at the workforce, first of all. Now, it's been proven by, by economists that immigration actually helps the economy because it brings in people who, first of all, have skills. So a lot of the people who actually come in uh, through the European Union are skilled workers. They're not. Um, they're not unskilled. They're not okay. There's there's like a kind of a myth I think that any immigrant coming into the UK is just a sort of unskilled um, uh, asylum seeker, uh, some sort of low level potential terrorist who who's got no skills at all. Um, and they're lazy, and they're only coming in because they want to take advantage of the benefits system in the country. That seems to be the attitude of a lot of Eurosceptic people, that the immigrants are lazy, criminals, uh, who've got no skills, and they just want to take advantage of our system, and at the same time, they're stealing our jobs. So if if your job is under threat from a lazy criminal uh, asylum seeker, what does that say about you? I mean, it doesn't make sense, does it, that these lazy people are coming and stealing our jobs? I thought they were lazy. Um, 
So I think there are some, you know, misconceptions about immigration and the issue is clouded by fear and it's clouded by a fear of the unknown and the fact that um, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of um, uh, propaganda by certain people and again, that rhetoric, that language that's used to instill fear in people. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to a sort of low-level racism um, and I think that plenty of the people who come into the UK actually contribute a lot. In fact, it's been proven. It's been proven by plenty of economists that uh, immigrants actually uh, contribute more than they take away. So, um, of course, some of the immigrants come in and they need help, just like any people. So, you know, they do claim benefits, some of them. They do use our services, like our National Health Service and things like that. They do require education. And, you know, that's complicated and, and uh, our services need to work to, to incorporate these people. But also they bring in skills, they bring in diversity, um, and they bring in things that we don't already have. You know, there are plenty of good people who come in and they contribute and they pay their taxes actually help the economy in many ways. Um, also, arguably, uh, many immigrants come in and they are prepared to do the work that uh, the locals don't want to do. And often they're prepared to do it at a slightly lower wage. Uh, so I know that one of the arguments against this is that if the immigrants didn't come, that uh, the, the wages would go up. And therefore, you know, the local British people might be paid more. There may be an argument for that. But I think overall, immigration is not this terrible force. I think that it's actually very beneficial for the economy and also beneficial for our culture. And in fact, if you look back into the history of the UK, there's always been people coming in. I mean, the whole history, the, the reason why we have a rich culture and the reason why we have a rich language is purely because of the number of people who've moved through the British Isles over the years. I mean, you, you know, all you need to do is have a look at the, the history of the language to see that we've had so many different uh, like uh, people with different languages who've come and settled in the UK and added to the mix. You know, we are uh, a, a nation of immigrants and I think that it's important to embrace that rather than pointing a finger at immigration as the cause of all our problems. I think it's reductive and it's dangerous to, to suggest that all of our problems come from immigration. Uh, it's just not true and it's small-minded and it's not going to help us in the future, um, I think. I think we need to embrace uh, being part of the world um, and I think it's the only way to move forwards. Now, there's the argument of um, security and, uh, and, and terrorism, right? So, for example, you hear people talking about uh, um, uh, uh, terrorists and extremists using the European Union in order to travel in, in order to spread their agenda. Now, uh, I don't think that leaving the European Union would solve all of our terrorist problems. So first of all, we already know that uh, many of the terrorists actually um, are born and bred in the UK. So they're not coming from Europe. They're actually here already. Uh, people who are born and bred in England um, are, are 
turning into terrorists. So we need to look at the culture within the country, first of all, and understand why that's happening, rather than just assuming that it's all coming from abroad. It's not. It's coming from inside. Um, And then, actually, the European Union, as it stands at this point, is actually protecting us from a lot of uh, um, people that we don't necessarily want in the country. Uh, For example, we have um, in Calais, in you know on the french coast uh there is a camp where lots of um economic migrants are settled and actually the french services are holding on to them they're hold- they're keeping them there uh because you know britain is not in the schengen zone um so there are um uh there are customs checks you know if if you've ever been into england you'll know that you had to sh- you have to show your passport even if you are a european citizen um so actually the european union is holding on to a lot of people to prevent them from moving across the channel into the uk and um if we came out of the european union then i think that the eu would be less willing to prevent people from from crossing the channel and Francois Hollande himself has said that there would be consequences. Maybe he's suggesting that the, the, the services at Calais would work less hard to hold on to those, um, those immigrants. Um, and in fact, illegal immigration would probably go up if we left the European Union. Because, um, you know, more and more people would be entering the country illegally rather than going through the the rather than being processed by the European Union processed by our immediate neighbors they'd be slipping through the cracks uh, um, and coming in illegally you know because let's face it a lot of people just want to come we're not necessarily going to be able to just stop them by leaving the union it's not going to solve all our problems um ah, all right all right then and that's it <laughs> that's the end of this episode so let me just go through some of the words that you heard so you heard things like um we had the referendum the electorate uh, to call a referendum to hold a referendum to put something to a referendum we had sovereignty um uh, for example to have sovereignty to give up sovereignty claim sovereignty undermine sovereignty a loss of sovereignty uh, the adjective sovereign for example sovereign debt uh, democratic undemocratic anti-democratic uh, democratic deficit uh, we've had bureaucracy, bureaucrats and bureaucratic. Uh, we had the word biased. Um, other words, we've had a manifesto, backbenchers, remember that? Uh, rhetoric, political rhetoric, eurosceptics, uh, proponents and opponents, um, politicians, politics, political and policy, bureaucrats, bureaucracy, bureaucratic and red tape. We had treaties. Laws, legislation, controls, rules, regulations and directives uh, to comply with regulations, to be subject to regulations. Didn't write that one. To be subject um, to regulations. Uh, The working time directive to opt in or to opt out of something to get concessions or to make concessions we had the budget the budget deficit uh eu contributions and eu spending net contributions gross contributions gdp um gross domestic product uh the nhs that's the national health service um a rebate for example a tax rebate when you get a repayment from some of the tax you've paid uh the eurozone currency currency fluctuation uh free trade um tariffs on imports and exports uh uh manufacturers 
the gateway to Europe. This is the idea that, uh, um, for example, American companies can base their operations in the UK and then take advantage of the uh, the, the free trade that we have uh, with the EU. Um, so the, in that sense, the UK is the gateway to Europe. And if we came out of the European Union, that gateway would be closed and a lot of American companies would perhaps stop investing in us. Um, risk, confidence, those important factors for financial investments, um, and um, in terms of immigration, we had the workforce uh, benefits, you know, things like uh, housing, education, national health service. These are all benefits uh, that people can take advantage of if they need them. Um, we had uh, unemployment, um, uh, illegal immigrants, economic migrants, and uh, and that's pretty much it. So on balance, you can see that I'm, I'm convinced that the UK should stay in the European Union. I'm sure that there are reasons why it's not perfect. And I know that there are some undemocratic elements, that there are some questions about immigration. Um, and um, sure, we would be able to save some money on our contributions. But ultimately, I think that, uh, that it's much more profitable for us to be in the union. And leaving is, a, is like a leap into the dark. And I think that um, it would be an extremely risky move. And frankly, we're fine. We're okay at the moment. We're doing well in the European Union. Considering the world is in a pretty messed up state, there is a global economic crisis which is continuing. And this is not necessarily the time to decide to take an isolationist approach and to blame all our problems on foreign uh, scapegoats um, and of drift off with this dream this kind of ideology that britain is the greatest nation on earth and all that sort of thing i think there are lots of vested interests boris johnson for example i don't i don't completely believe that he is 100 behind the the european pro, uh, the 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 uh the leave campaign i think that a lot of that's uh, motivated by personal ambition and things like that i could go on i could keep going on about this subject forever but uh that's the end of this one don't forget to visit the page for this episode ladies and gentlemen where you can read a lot of those words um and remember the aim of this whole thing was to try to raise your vocabulary all right and i really hope you feel that that's happened um if you do visit the page you'll see all those words it's a, it's a good chance for you to uh, take on a lot of this language um i look forward to reading your comments i'm sure that some of you out there disagree with me which of course you know you can do of course a free world but if you do disagree please flesh out your arguments okay give me some proper arguments as to why i'm wrong if you think i'm wrong if you think i'm right feel free to let me know you know it's always nice to know that you're right especially when you're just alone speaking into a microphone uh, so do let me know what you think basically of what i've been talking about the brexit thing continues the referendum is in um it's in about three weeks time and uh this situation is going to continue to develop i'm sure as we move further towards the, that date uh, the 23rd of june thank you very much for listening um if you enjoy this podcast just do me a favor can you can you tell your friends spread the word about luke's english podcast uh, if you really enjoy listening to this and you think that your friends will enjoy it too, please recommend it to them. In fact, what you could do is just think of one person, one person that you think would really like this. 
share this podcast with them. Send them a link to the website or send them a message or just tell them about it and, and tell them why you think it's good, okay? It's a good way to, to spread the word and it, it could be a good way for you to help me. So I've given you all this language and stuff and I've, it's just a hard episode, I'll be honest. Pretty hard work to produce this one. All that's pretty meaty language. So if you appreciate what I've done, then you can return the favour by uh, spreading the word and recommending the podcast to a friend. Thank you again for listening. Speak to you again soon. Uh, But for now, it's time to say goodbye. Bye. Bye. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Luke's English podcast. You can't touch this. This is a masterpiece of the English language. All righty then. Just think of the accolades it's received over the years. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. This is going to be good. Really? Yes. I want to get into it, man. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Luke's English podcast. And this is Britain at its best. Oh, you lucky people. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar, and pronunciation teaching from me, and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.